And we'll be looking at the first three verses of chapter 60. Isaiah begins his 60th chapter saying, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Let's pray. O Lord, You have taught us that without love, whatever we do is worth nothing. Send Your Holy Spirit and pour into our hearts Your greatest gift, which is love. The true bond of peace and of all virtue without which whoever lives is counted dead before you. Grant this for the sake of your only Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Scriptures are woven together with a variety of themes. One of the chiefest theme in the Scriptures, seen in the Old Testament and in the New, is that of light and darkness. Isaiah as a prophet, he uses this theme to some extent. And here especially, as he calls out, Arise and shine. And he speaks of darkness covering the earth. Deep darkness covering the people, and yet the Lord rising up over us in His glory, His brilliance, His brightness, His light being seen upon us. Isaiah offers to the world its hope. We think of Isaiah as a prophecy for Israel, as indeed we should. But Isaiah is not content with speaking hope and peace and the gospel to Israel, but Isaiah understands that God, being the one true God, is really indeed the God of all the nations. He is the God of all the world, and His intention is not just to redeem Israel and not just to preserve a remnant in Israel, but through Israel and through that remnant to redeem the world. Isaiah's audience is is perplexing to scholars because his audience is really not just threefold, but his audience is threefold of multiple generations. The first 39 chapters, he's prophesying to Israel of their coming doom, of the fact that God is going to judge his people because of their wickedness and because they have profaned his name to the nations before the Gentiles. And chapter 39 ends with the caravans coming in and Israel being taken into captivity. But chapter 40 begins beautifully and hopefully 
Comfort. Comfort my people. In chapter 40, Isaiah's audience turns not to Israel before captivity, but to Israel generations later as they are in captivity. And he tells them that he will not leave them in their judgment, but he has judged them so as to purify them. He has brought judgment upon them for healing. He's like the doctor who gets the rotting tooth out of the gums. It doesn't feel good. It hurts. It's painful. It's, in a sense, a judgment. There's something sick here that needs to be dealt with. But through that dealing with, God brings healing and health. Isaiah's audience changes once more in chapter 55 or in chapter 56, his, uh, his second audience ends in chapter 55. And in chapter 56, Isaiah miraculously begins prophesying to those who will come out of captivity. So he's preaching to Israel before captivity. He's looking out ahead and preaching to Israel in captivity. And then his final offer of hope is to those who come out of captivity. And one of the amazing things that Isaiah says is that God's hope is not just to redeem Israel, but through Israel to redeem the whole world. And so here in the first verse of chapter 60, he says, Arise, shine, let your light shine. And he's offering hope to the Gentiles, to the world, to the nations surrounding Israel. God's promise and intention is to redeem the world. And so he cries out to his people, wake up. Rise and shine. Wipe the dust from your eyes. The sand that settled there. You have work to do. And that work is to be a light to the nations. To be a light to the Gentiles. Wake up, he says. The kingdom has been established and yet we, Paul would call us his ambassadors, are sleeping on the job. In 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the Christians of Corinth that they are ambassadors of Christ as though God were pleading through them. And his plea is to be reconciled to God. They are ambassadors of the kingdom as you and I are. Representing the king. And Isaiah here says, Arise and shine, for your light has come. Light has pierced the darkness. And it's time to wake up and get up. We think the Gentiles, the nations, that's us. I'm not Jewish by birth. The Gentiles in Israel's day were those who were outside the household of faith. As people of the church, who are our Gentiles? It's remarkable to see what God is doing in India. 
it's remarkable to see what God is doing around the world as He builds His church in Africa, Asia, Central and South America. God is doing remarkable things. The church in the West is largely dead. Dead or dying. The church of Europe is a corpse of what it used to be. Who are our Gentiles? Who are those people that God wants to reach as part of His world with His gospel? They surround us. They're all around us. They're all around you. They're all around me. They're the people with whom we work. They're the people in whose neighborhoods we live. They're the people who play on sports teams with our kids. They're all around us. We speak of secularism in the West. This idea that there's some division and separation between the spiritual and the physical, and we see whole pockets of our society. In fact, in large part, our whole society is becoming this, that denies the spiritual and simply lives the physical. Throughout the West, we find secularism. We find it in theory and we find it in practice. In theory, we have that of philosophical atheism. There are people with whom you work who do not believe there is a God. There are people with whom you live who do not believe. They are convinced that there is no God. They believe this and they are convinced of this for a variety of reasons. But they really are there. That used to not be so in America. That wasn't so when I was growing up. When I was growing up, even in public school, we had teachers who would pray for us. We had teachers, science teachers, who told us to go to church. English teachers who would ask us, are you involved in a church? That's not so today. The assumption that, well, just everybody believes in God, certainly. Everybody knows something about Jesus. They just don't want to live for Him. That assumption is majorly flawed today. There are people who are not necessarily philosophical atheists, but who really are pragmatic agnostics. In uh, When I was in college, the... Uh, the, the thought was that there are philosophical atheists, people who are convinced there is no God, and then there are, there are philosophic, or then there are pragmatic atheists, people who live as though there isn't. I, I've kind of changed that thinking in my mind a little bit because there are those who are convinced there is no God and there are folks who live as though, well, if there is or isn't, who really cares? It doesn't matter. That might surprise us if we grew up in church. But those who, of us who didn't grow up in church, we'd say, yeah, that's what I grew up in. I wasn't convinced there was no God. I just lived life as though that question really didn't matter. 
the people next door. The guy working in the office down the hall. The family on the bleachers in front of us. People with whom we already have some relationship. Many of them are living their lives radically different from you. And I'm not talking about vices. I'm not talking about families who, you know, quote, live like the world. I'm talking about families who live like the world in the sense that they're not here on Sundays. And the last thing they're thinking about on Sundays is church. The last thing they're thinking about when they sit down to a meal is to say a blessing. We take all those things for granted. You know, we grew up, most of us, in the South. The Bible Belt. Every family says a blessing, right? And you know normally who doesn't normally say a blessing because when you get together for Thanksgiving, they call it, let's say, grace. And if they know you go to church, you'll be the one who's asked. I'm asked all the time because I'm the, I'm the preacher. In fact, uh, Lindsay always says, that's what we pay you for. Say the blessing. <laughs> We just assume that's life, right? You've got a meal. It's a good-looking steak. Say a blessing. Our world is um, our world is increasingly becoming like what we see on television, and I don't know how all of that works. I I do feel that pop culture kind of drives culture and I do feel though that pop culture obviously gleans from culture. But most shows we watch, in fact I would would say probably every show we watch, families sit down to a meal and they don't even stop to think. They just sit down and dig in. They live lives pragmatically agnostic. Not Not against God, not denying God, but simply living as though whether He is or isn't really doesn't matter. That is a bit of a culture shock for most of us. I grew up where every Sunday there was no question but that we were going to church. And everyone who happened to be in the house when the doors locked on Saturday night, they were going with us. Sick or not. I had a friend who threw up at church because he probably shouldn't have been there, but he made the mistake of sleeping at our house on Saturday night. During communion, all the details are coming rushing back into my mind now. Poor kid lived next door. We could have just dropped him off on the way out, but that wasn't happening. We, we forget that... that There's a whole world out there in America, in the Bible Belt, who do not live as we live. Who do not take the most basic assumptions of life that we have for granted. Their dogma, that worldview idea, 
is completely and utterly different from ours. And it's not just a few of them. It's most of them. Because if most of your neighbors are not convinced there is no God, they are at least living as though it really just doesn't matter. We think of agnosticism as being, well, I don't know, and that really is kind of it. But that, that, that answer of, well, I don't know, leads to, and it really doesn't matter. I mentioned that you and I already have working relationships with these people. People with whom we work. People with whom we play. People we run into on a regular basis. People who we ask about what new shrubs they have in their yard. We might like to buy some as well. We already have working relationships with those people. And what's sad is that we ourselves in how we relate to them, are generally found in this category of pragmatic agnosticism. Because the question is not, are we religious enough in our relationships with others? You know, do we bring up God enough? Do we mention our church enough? Do we quote scripture as we're talking with them? Some of those things can come across as very weird. But the question is really, is there anything characteristically Christian about how we relate to others? Stop and think about that question for just a moment. Your own life, tomorrow, when you head back into work, is there anything characteristically Christian I'm not talking about moral. I'm not talking about good. I'm talking about characteristically Christian about how you relate to others. It's easy to think, I live a good life. I don't do all sorts of horrible things. I'm a pretty kind fellow. I'm polite. I say yes ma'am and no ma'am. I say please and thank you. I do all those things that I want my kids to do. There's nothing characteristically Christian about that. What makes yes ma'am and no ma'am Christian? There's only really one driving force that ought to be in our minds as we relate to others. Paul talked about it in Ephesians chapter 2. He said that we were once on the outside. We're on the outside either looking in or not really knowing that we were outside of anything. And yet God who was rich in mercy, He came through His Son Jesus and He redeemed us. Paul said to the Ephesians, you were once not a people. You were... You were nobodies. You didn't have this spiritual family. And yet God has brought you near through the blood of His Son. Paul says that to remind the church of what God has done in their behalf, but also to remind them of their roots. 
You were once alienated just like everyone else. You were once outside of God's redeeming grace, just as your neighbors. And that thought ought to drive us. That thought ought to be what shakes us in the morning and wakes us up. That thought ought to ring with the words of Isaiah, Arise, shine. Wake up. Get up and be something. There's only one way that we will truly reach the world, the Gentiles. That way is not composed of gimmicks or ploys. It's not even really our morality. We think of that theme, light and darkness, and we think, oh yeah, darkness is bad stuff and light is good stuff. And we forget that good stuff does not mean not bad stuff. Let me go back over that. We, we see darkness, bad, light, good. Darkness, bad things, bad behaviors. And then we forget that light is not, not that. Light is something characteristically different. You remember, darkness is the absence of light. Light is not the absence of darkness. What all that means is that we think us being lights in darkness means that we simply live good moral lives. In other words, we don't do bad things. That's not the life to which God has called us. At least that's not the total of the life to which God has called us. He has called us not to be something that is absent of evil. He's called us to be something that is good. And in reaching the world, we will only do that through the love of Jesus living in us. Because we can't reach the world. When we try to reach the world, we come up with the gimmicks. We come up with the ploys. We come up with the things that we think might work. You know, pastors do all sorts of weird things like, I'll dye my hair pink if we get 100 people here on church, at church on Sunday. That's, that's weird, first of all. I don't mind dyeing my hair pink if I thought it would you know, be kind of cool. And, but it's just a gimmick. There's nothing Christian about that. There's nothing gospel about that. There's nothing Jesus about that. It's just a, it's just a ploy and a gimmick. And that doesn't really reach anybody. I don't think... Your, your friends who live next door who haven't been to church in 20 years are going to come to church because, oh, the pastor's going to dye his hair pink. Maybe they would. If so, we'll talk. <laughs> but, but in really reaching people, because reaching people is not getting them to come through a door. Reaching the lost is about the lost coming to know Jesus. And that will not happen through our gimmicks. It will not happen through good advertisement. It will not happen through mass marketing. It will not happen by making sure we invite 20 people so that one of them might show up. 
more than that will actually show up. So if you invite people, don't be discouraged. It's actually effective. But reaching people, the life of God getting into somebody else's life, it will only happen through the love of Jesus being lived out in us. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus told his disciples, the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. By the character of the way you interact with one another. The love of Jesus being lived out in us in the lives of others is something that comes with a cost. It'll cost us kindness, which is not anything huge really, but think of acts of kindness. Not just politeness, kindness. How do you show people kindness? Energy. That's one of the biggies. Sometimes we just don't have the energy to make friends and develop relationships. We've got so much going on. It might, yes, cost us money. Sometime, sometimes being friends costs financially. A friend invites you to their kid's birthday party. You're probably going to take a gift. You're probably going to spend $4 for a bag to put that gift in. You're probably going to spend 6 bucks for a card to say, Hey, I got you a gift. Thank you for inviting me to your party. It's not cheap having friends. Some of you get together for coffee and normally you argue over who's paying. Having a family over for dinner. Inviting folks to join you somewhere. Sometimes that stuff costs money. Time. Being the light of the gospel in dark places. It will cost us our time. And this is probably the most expensive one of all for most of us. Because... We have schedules that are packed to the max. We have sports to get to. We have practices for those sports to get to. We have parties to celebrate those sports that we've done and we've practiced for to get to. We have multiple kids playing multiple sports. We have business trips. We have vacations. We have dental appointments, doctor appointments, haircut appointments. We got books we want to read. We've got things we want to do. We've got games we've downloaded on our iPhones that we can play during those downtimes. We're busy people. We don't have a whole lot of time. But if we're going to live the light of the gospel, in God's world, 
it's going to take a little bit of sacrifice in the way of time. Because light is not our default setting. You're not light in the world just because you live and breathe and happen to worship Jesus on Sunday mornings. You are light in the darkness when you actively, practically, in your body and with the intention of your will, show love to someone else. And love is a hard road. Because love is not our default setting. Love is not something that just oozes out of our pores. If, that's, if, if love is easy for us, we, we have something wrong with our definition of love. It's not the biblical definition of love. Because love is something that is active. It's something that's done. It's something that's behaved. You show love. You don't just have and feel love. And love that is done is something that we have to intend to do. We don't accidentally love someone. We purpose to love them. The greatest emblem of that is the exchange of vows in a wedding. But even in our friendships... In our working relationships. If we love someone, it's because we see value in them and we determine we are going to love them. We're going to appreciate and build that value. That's how we reach the Gentiles. I hate to end on a sour note, but here's, hang on, I'm missing something, there we go. Here's why we won't reach them. Why we don't and why we won't. It's hard to change someone else's world. Like I said, you and I can't do it in and of our own strength. We can only do it through the love of Jesus. But even then, it is difficult to change someone else's world. And we won't do that because of our pride. We would rather them see us and esteem us morally. We'd rather be different than they. We like being the good Christian folk. We like being the ones with manners. There's something, and I'm not saying all of us, so you might say, not me. Okay, well, might be you, but we tend to like being thought of as those who have life put together. We like here. I like, I'm, this is confession time, I like hearing, your kids are polite. Makes me feel good. In fact, it's nice to see other people's kids acting like terrors in store because I think it's not just me. And for once, it's not me right now. My kid's nice and behaving. My kid's looking at yours like he's weird, like he's an alien or something. 
But our pride, if we're not careful, will swell up and think, I like being different from the world. So much so that this is my piece of property. This morality thing, this love thing, it's mine. I'm different. We don't reach them and won't reach them. We won't change somebody else's life because of ignorance. We think they are the enemy. It is us versus them. It is the church versus the world. And we're going to stand our ground and we're going to fight tooth and nail and we're going to demonize them and we're not going to have sympathy for them because they're getting what's coming to them. They're getting what they deserve. That's ignorance. That's not biblical. I'm kind of playing to your ego here. I'm hoping you'll say, that's not me. Okay. Then maybe we're getting somewhere. We don't reach them. We won't reach them. Because of our apathy. We simply really just don't care. That goes back generally to our time, to our energy. We've got our lives to live. We've got our families to worry about. We've got our things to do. We've got our stuff to plan. We've got our parties to clean up after. We've got all these things. We've got to get to work. We've got to get the bills paid. We got to make sure we're at practice. We got to do this. We got to do that. All the while, we just simply fly by people that we, quite frankly, don't care that much about. It's easy in a church setting to say, "Yeah, we love the world," but in the day-to-day living of our lives, do we love the world? Or do we just take for granted the fact that life will go on and we'll accomplish 80% of those priorities we've made for ourselves and we'll do our best and those people we say we care about, really we haven't had any influence on. My hope is that you'll prove me wrong in these things. Some of you already are. I hear stories about you. People talk about you. I don't know if you know that. It's not always bad. It's normally good. I hear stories of what some of you are doing for the sake of neighbors, for the sake of others. Time that you're spending with coworkers. It's exciting. God's challenge to us, His call to us, His intention for the world is that we would actually change the world. When you read through the book of Acts, you're struck by the life change among the disciples, but you're struck also by the world change that's done through the church. In fact, you have much like uh, the gospel records, because Acts really is presented as a continuation of the gospel record in Luke's account. But much like in the Gospels where you have everybody talking about Jesus. Who is He? What's He doing? Where did He come from? Didn't any from Galilee? Nazareth? What's, what's going to come out of Nazareth? All those questions surrounding Jesus in the Gospels. And those questions are either explicitly stated about the church in Acts or they 
lie under the surface. In fact, at one point, we're told that the, Christ, the, the church was called Christians in Antioch because their life was characteristically different. That was kind of a, a put-down, like the term Methodism, Methodist, to John Wesley. It was kind of a, a snide label from those who looked on at the church. But you have another um, city as, as the disciples are going there. Say, oh goodness gracious, these people have turned the world upside down and now they've come here. The book of Acts is about God's kingdom that began as a seed spreading to the ends of the earth as Jesus said the disciples would do with it. God wants to change His world. And He wants to change His world through establishing His kingdom in it through His people. And that might sound huge and startling. It should. God wants to change the world through me? Who am I? I'm just a, just a little bug on the ground. I'm nothing significant. I'm nothing important. I don't know what, who am I going to influence that's going to change the world? Francis of Assisi said, and this is a good way to think, start by doing what's necessary. You have things you have to do, right? Then do what's possible. You have things you could do. And suddenly, you're doing the impossible. We might think, God, you're crazy. I can't change the world. How in the world are the Gentiles going to know you through me? Do what you are able, and God will bless it. Do what you are able to show someone else the love of Jesus and you will be blown away at the results. Blown away. That shouldn't surprise us. We, we are weakly reminded of how crazy things are and how weird things turn out in our favor. We meet people like Lindsay and I did at the park this past week who knew who I was, though they had never met us because I was... The guy with the beard and my daughter said she pastored a church and they thought, I bet that was the guy that taught at Praise Academy. I thought this was a former student. It wasn't. Somebody I had never met. Have we met? No. Thought I knew who you were though. Your daughter said you were a pastor of a church. Even knew the name of the church. Isn't it Faith, is it Faith Methodist? Yeah, that's right. It's weird the way God works. We, so often, we've turned it into a cliche that God works in mysterious ways. But it would do us well to be reminded that if we will be faithful in doing those things that God has called us to do, if we will do what we are able in showing others the love of Jesus, before you know it, we'll be perplexed and blown away at what God is doing through us. What we must first make sure we do is wake up. We are ambassadors for Christ. God is pleading to a lost and broken and darkened world 
And He wants to do that through you and me. The Gentiles are in need of light. And God calls out to us, rise and shine. There's work to do. There's a world to save. There are people who need light. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you again,